And now they're both going to be these ginormous, uh, that's not a word. Hold on. <laughs> now they're both it, going to be, it can gin- be a word. ginormous can be a word. Yes. I mean, I have this one memory of a high school teacher. I'm fourth wall break. I don't want to get too technical, but these are called core memories. He interrupted another student who had said ginormous and he was like, it's either gigantic or it's enormous. Ginormous is not a word. <laughs> and that's, st- I internalized that. So I, I know that. And every time I feel myself about to type it or text it, I'm like, no, I choose one. everyone, and welcome to episode 43 of Plot Devices. Yeah, our taping schedule's been a bit nuts, so uh, sorry about that. Uh, hopefully you've been joining our mini-sodes we've been putting out over the last couple weeks, our most anticipated of 2023, our best films of 2022. We had a lot of fun doing those, but it's back to the main product that hopefully you guys are all big, big fans of, as, as we are. I am one of your hosts, Brandon King, alongside my co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, happy belated New Year. You just ran a marathon the other day. Are you okay? Brandon, respected, respectfully, it was a half marathon. And disrespectfully, I ran into some errors on the run, on the run itself. And I went with some family members. And now, honest mistake, okay? I was out there in Sedona, AZ, preparing myself for this half marathon, 13.1 mile run, only to take a turn way earlier than expected. And I was leading the pack for my family. So I ended up turning very early in the race. I, I, I mean it with all my heart that this was a honest mistake. So I actually ended up crossing the finish line in an hour and clocking in about six miles for this run. And I, I, I kind of sat around. I entertained myself for the next hour. My family finally crossed the finish line and they were exhausted. You know, it's a mark of achievement with their exhaustion that they faced, but, um, it's not about the journey. It's about the destination. And we all ended at the same place. That's how that quote goes, right, Brandon? Yeah, you, you got your medal. Everyone's happy. Otherwise, I'm feeling great. It's February. We're back to our, you know, traditional format for the plot device full-length episodes. We have some pretty entertaining titles we're covering today, one of which we ha- we've been waiting to cover on the show. So I can't wait to get into that with you, Brandon. But we've got even bigger things uh, at the top of our show with our news announcements. So uh, right back over to you. It's good to be back and kind of like in our um, comfortable seats here. Yes. Yeah, so coming up on reviews, we've got to talk about robots and technology and murder mysteries and things of that nature all things that actually tie into our first topic it's all timely yay brandon's such a genius host Uh, whatever uh as you guys may or may not be aware the dc film universe has been in a bit of a scattered state over the last number of years that's putting it lightly Uh, a lot of people like it a lot of people really don't like it and when uh james gunn of course best known for his work on the guardians of the galaxy movies and of course the recent peacemaker series the suicide squad movie uh when he was brought on board to help shepherd dc films into the new 2020s along with uh, legendary producer peter safran a lot of people have been speculating to death on what that plan could look like at least for part of it we don't have to worry about the hearsay anymore uh gunn took to twitter not to confirm or shut down rumors as i love that he has been doing he announced the first chapter of his and producer peter safran's new plans for dc characters that will be subtitled Gods and Monsters. And though play was announced, Gunn also made it clear this was only the beginning. We're going to be getting more of just this first chapter later in the year, uh, but this is just the stuff he wanted to kind of tease us with first and foremost, just so that, yes, we are working on a plan. Five feature films confirmed from that video. Uh, Superman Legacy, which Gunn will write and potentially direct, although he, ha- he still hasn't confirmed that. The Brave and the Bold, which centers on a new version of Batman. Yes, so it won't be Robert Pattinson's. We'll get to him in just a minute. Along with the Damian Wayne version of Robin, so Bruce Wayne's son and all that uh, baggage that comes with it. 
Supergirl, The Woman of Tomorrow, which will be based on the Tom King Dukas Everly series of the same name, which is fantastic, by the way, and you should all read it. Uh, the Authority, which focuses on a gritty team of superheroes based on the iconic Warren Ellis Brian Hitch series from the 90s. And Swamp Thing, based on the supernatural character uh, popularized by Alan Moore, has a lot of connections with Justice League Dark, things of that nature. In addition, five new series, either going to HBO Max or other networks in the Warner Brothers scope, were also announced. Uh, Creature Commandos will be a seven-episode animated series written by Gunn himself. I believe he's also directing, but correct if I'm wrong on that feature me. Uh, Waller, which will follow Viola Davis's version of Amanda Waller, of course, from the Suicide Squad movie from Peacemaker. That whole thread will be continuing in a separate series. Lanterns, a Green Lantern show which will focus on Hal Jordan and Jon Stewart's incarnations of the Green Lantern, said to be in the vein of True Detective of all things, uh, and apparently very influenced by the Earth-1 graphic novel series. Booster Gold, which follows the cult classic time traveler uh, character, and Paradise Lost, a Game of Thrones-inspired one-woman prequel series focusing on the Amazons. In addition, uh, you're probably wondering, what about Batman 2? Well, Matt Reeves' Batman Part 2 is scheduled for 2025. That is sticking in the new Elseworlds banner, which is essentially going to be anything outside of the gun saffron verse. That also includes Joker Folia Du. That also includes uh, Superman and Lois. And that also weirdly includes J.J. Uh, Abrams' Black-Led Superman incarnation that is still apparently happening. We thought that was dead for a while, but apparently it's still going on. The only confirmed release that we got for Chapter 1 was uh, Superman Legacy. That is set to come out July 11th, to, uh, 2025. No casting for Superman yet. No casting for any of these yet. So, Noah, I know you didn't watch the video, but you heard a lot of these news. You heard me break all this down. Uh, obvious big first question. Not a ton of heavy hitters in this. Obviously, Superman, Batman in this, but, like, Swamp Thing is not a household name. Booster Gold is not a household name. Is this the—does this make you optimistic? I'm exhausted. I mean, yeah. you're, you're delivering this in such an eloquent style. I love hearing Try. I know the listeners are right there going, damn, I love all this information that brand Mr. King's delivering. I'm honestly exhausted. I think that it is so much to come out the gate swinging saying, Hey, we are, we are delivering, uh, not only these fresh new takes on these characters and titles in this new phase. They're not calling it a phase. And I think it's because like, you know, that's already associated with all things Marvel. They're also not just sticking to full length feature projects. They're also announcing all of these series that are going to tie into their DCU. And not only that, but then there's the, there's the else world. So, so many things coming at audiences at once. I go, damn, it's kind of hard to imagine any of this actually happening. I kind of got to ask myself, is this all really happening? And I am eager to find out what these characters have to offer audiences when we have the type of attention and care that Gunn has placed in its characters, in his characters over on the Marvel front. I mean, when I'm paying attention to conversations that go on around superhero adaptations. There's so much talk around why we haven't had like a deserving iteration of a Green Lantern live action take. And so I'm actually really excited to what the Green Lantern storyline is going to be. I think that that's going to be one that I will be particularly interested in focusing on hearing updates about and just listening out for. The second one I wanted to highlight was going to be Booster Gold. Now, you're right. I did not watch the video where all of these announcements were made, but I did see a couple articles just like uh, popping up on my feeds, one of which had to do with the character Booster Gold and how he would really work during a time like this. And so that intrigued me enough to go and dive into the article and figure out that Booster Gold you know, and this is just all based off of my loose reading of that article. So I'm sorry if I'm butchering the character's history. You can always throw um, your berating comments our way to correct us. But he is essentially a character, a hero from the future who shows up really to save the day for the sake of, you know, garnering attention. Like he's always doing a live feed. He is definitely a hero that is 
tuned into the technology around him because it reminds me of the boys, right? Like they're doing, he is doing these acts of heroism, not because they're, you know, because he wants to do them, but more so because of the attention that he gets and the love. And I think um, affection that his fans quote unquote will show him. I think that that's so interesting. You know, who knows what they can do with marketing with a character like that when he kind of uh, exists outside of just what we see on screen. You know, maybe he does pop up on socials. Maybe he pops up elsewhere too. It's just, there's a lot of potential with a character like that. So that's exciting to announce. And he's not a, a household name, as you mentioned, others are. I asked you before we started recording what you could share about you know, any notes of significance when it comes to Swamp Thing, because that is a character who we've seen. Uh, I think there's even a CW series about Swamp Thing, right? I know most about a lot of these characters. The only ones I don't really know a lot of are The Authority, which I had to look up myself because I really didn't know much about them, aside from Apollo and Midnighter, which are two legendary queer superheroes who have a lot of great subtext around them, and I think there's a lot of cool material around there. Um, but as you mentioned, Swamp Thing, I'm also not super familiar with. I know the basics around Swamp Thing. For those of you who don't know, the gist as I understand it is that a scientist goes into a swamp and then there's this magical thing called the green that kind of sucks the essence out of him and transfers it into this like swamp-like creature that becomes the swamp thing. I think that's the basis of it. I haven't read too much of it. I know that, again, Alan Moore's run on it is legendary. There have been a lot of great incarnations of it. I like the incarnation in um uh, in Injustice and like Final Crisis and like that that I've read. There's a lot of neat mythology around the character. And again, like tying into the environmentalism angle, tying into as Gunn really tried to emphasize bringing a lot of different threads of the DC universe together, one of which is the supernatural angle, which can lead to John Constantine and Zatanna and Deadman and all those really interesting characters. So I think Swamp Thing is a barrier to that, along with like Creature Commandos, which I also don't really know that much about. I think those are really fascinating. You know, I read Gods and Monsters, and I don't picture necessarily what's been slated, but why do you think we're starting with these titles, if you have a take on that? It's interesting because, well, first and foremost, there's an animated movie called Justice League Gods and Monsters that is fantastic if any of you have not watched it, but it's very, very different. Uh, second of all, you're right. Like, why the subtitle for this? It seems like Gunn is taking the characters of DC Comics and amalgamating them with the iconography and sense of poise of, like, the universal monsters. Like, again, going to the idea of, like, the monsters or things that we look up to are just as humans as us. And I, I looked at things like Swamp Thing. I looked to, like, the darker side of stuff like Waller or, you know, uh, the Themyscirian mythology with uh, Paradise Lost. And it seems like he's kind of taking that angle with it. Like, we're building out a world, but we're not necessarily building out a story. Now, I understand that some of you are probably hearing about this who have thoughts on Marvel Phase 4 and are going, well, that's why I didn't like Phase 4 Marvel, because it did feel so disjointed and kind of building out everything. But I think that's kind of the point on this. I think Gunn recognizes that a decade removed from Man of Steel, a decade plus removed from the Dark Knight trilogy, the idea of what the DC universe is to modern audiences has been expanded more than ever. Of course, things like Spider-Verse and, you know, things like that have expanded the idea of what comic book storytelling can be to general audiences. So I think that idea is really permeating where him and Saffron are coming from. He specifically specified like Young Justice and like the DC animated line, like those things playing into the influence around those. So I think like coming into it, a lot of us were speculating the idea of like it was going to be a full hard reboot, like by Matt Reeves, by Joker, by everything else. And it seems to me that he's much more concerned with like, no, like you guys know all this. We don't need to make like a hard, concrete, you know, chronology to the whole thing. But like, let's tell these really interesting stories with, again, as Vito presented here, characters that maybe aren't household names yet, but can be and at the very least can expand us into really interesting worlds and ideas and storytelling purposes. 
do you think now we are even going to have a stronger debate of this Marvel versus DC? And now they're both going to be these ginormous, uh, that's not a word. Hold on. <laughs> now they're both it, going to be, it can gin- be a word. Ginormous can be a word. Yes. I mean, I have this one memory of a high school teacher. I'm fourth wall break. That's one memory of a high school teacher saying he interrupted another student who had said ginormous. And he was like, it's either gigantic or it's enormous. Ginormous is not a word. <laughs> and that's, st- I internalized that. So I, I know that. And every time I feel myself about to type it or text it, I'm like, no, I choose one enormous gigantic. So with these gigantic universes being thrown at audiences, people have this question, even when they approach a title, like, uh, let's say quantum mania and they go, Oh, well, I didn't even see Ant-Man and the Wasp. And then I saw infinity war. And then it took me a while to see Endgame, but then I did. And then I couldn't get to no way home, but did I have to watch it in order to understand this series? And people become exhausted with all of this type of like uh, tab keeping that they have to, or all of these tabs that they have to keep on a film franchise when they just want to go see a superhero movie. So how do you think audiences reactions will be knowing that now we're entering just another environment, another entire landscape of expectations when we come into these films? If they play their cards right, it can maybe be even more successful. Yeah, I said it. But again, I also said that 10 years ago when the initial DC slate came out and they were like, we're doing Justice League right after Wonder Woman. It's going to be like no buildup. And I thought the idea of having, oh yeah, do like your team up movie where you establish all these cool mythologies and ideas and then spread them out into their solo films. That could be cool. Obviously, that panned out the way that it did and, you know, ate my words on that. But I think with this, you know, it goes back to the idea of acceptance of comic book mediums and storytellings outside of like nerddom fandoms. And I think there's just that idea of, you know, okay, if you love Superman Legacy and you go into like Creature Commandos, the series, you don't really need to have seen Superman for that. You just need to be open to the idea of weird, eclectic stories being told by, like, really gifted filmmakers and writers. And to their credit, like, the guys that Gunn has assembled on this are really clever. Like, I think it's a team from Watchmen who's writing the one, the Waller series. Uh, Christina Hodgson, who wrote Birds of Prey and The Flash, is going to be working on some of these. So, like, they've got good names involved in the writer's room. I can just only hope that... I can only hope that whatever sense of, like, pure connectivity that Warner Brothers wants versus what Gunn and Saffron wants doesn't you know, have that like lightning bolt between them going like, I want this one thing and you don't, because that's what kind of took down the DC universe first and foremost. Again, I have every reason not to be optimistic about a lot of these things. And yet I kind of love the approach. And I think it can, I can, as you mentioned, I think it can lead some really cool connectivity. that isn't just like A to B to C. Even when we look at the TV and movies that Marvel has to offer, there are clear winners and there are standout, um, you know, the trial efforts. So we'll go ahead and have to wait and see which of all these titles that were listed, which ones are going to be the standouts from at this point. It is way too early to call, but once we get closer and closer, I think that you and I are going to want to recognize, you know, Hey, this is actually one that we think is going to have so much uh, momentum behind it and others. We'll, we'll just have to see if it matters in the grander storytelling. So uh, we can wrap on this and we can go ahead and move on. I, I was just going to say like to the, I know there's a lot of people complaining they're like, oh, we didn't get a Superman or Batman casting yet, or we didn't get a lot of people attached, or like Gunn didn't confirm if he was directing Superman, which at this point, I, I don't know for sure. I think there's a 50-50 shot either way. I don't want him to, but who knows? I would um, love no names. I want no names in there. Yeah, totally. Like, don't give me Timothy Chalamet as Superman. I know they're going younger, but like, oh, and I love Timothy Chalamet. Okay. Don't want oh, him. boy. At the same time, I do wish that in the video they had confirmed just some of the behind the scenes talent for it. Like, again, we know some of the writers room for it, but like who's show running lanterns? Like, is it the guys from True Detective? Are they going fully that or like bringing up some new young gun talents? Like who's going to be directing the authority? Like, how are you going to get something in the style of something like The Boys that isn't so that doesn't feel derivative to audience of The Boys? So like I'd love for names to get attached at some point very soon. But I understand that, you know, 
they were attached two months ago. They've only had so much time to plot out like a rough draft of all of this. We got what we got, and I'm I'm happy to see where it goes. We're going to move on to our next major news topic for the day. Uh, the Oscars are happening. We can finally stop predicting, at least until the winners, or at least for the nominations. Uh, the nominations for the 95th Oscars are officially here, and it did not work out with our taping schedule. Everything Everywhere All at Once, as it should be, is leading the nominations as of right now. Best Picture, Best Director, or Best Directors, I should say, along with nominations for Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, and Dual Spots for Supporting Actress. We'll get to that. All Quiet on the Western Front, Banshee of Sharon, those came right behind with nine nominations each, as well as a Best Picture nomination for both of those. And Elvis, racking up eight nominations as well. Uh, the 95th Oscars will be broadcast on March 12th, will be hosted once again by Jimmy Kimmel, and will be broadcast on ABC, potentially Disney Plus as well, because, Noah, I know you didn't watch the live stream, but they actually did a stream both on YouTube, but also on Disney Plus. And that got me thinking that maybe this would finally shatter the notion that the Oscars are just too good for streaming, which would be a great idea for them, but neither here nor there. Uh, what did you think of this initial batch of announcements? We'll, we'll probably just go like a pretty free form for the next couple minutes, but uh, what stood out to you initially? Now, I know this episode is going to get sent off. This recording is going to get sent off to our butcher down the street who's going to chop it up and make sure it's prepared, seasoned, and spicy for our listeners to receive, all right? But if there's one thing I cannot have him miss out on, it is the mention of Natu Natu making itself a nomination. Hell yes! And the only one... I, I, so far, right, that, that we have seen for our our beloved film, Triple R, RRR, um, coming from, oh, help me out. Oh, uh, Raja Muli. Raja Muli. And, oh, my goodness. So, Not To Not To is up there. I wanted to take it home. If it is, it is its solo a nomination, as I've mentioned, after looking at that nominated nomination list. And I would just love for that film for um, audiences to have their eyes on that market of filmmaking. And um, it even inspired me to go back and watch the YouTube video that is not to not to. And damn, I need to plan a rewatch of that movie. Um, in that same category, we have uh, Black Panther Wakanda Forever from Rihanna. It is Lift Me Up. So those are the two that I think exist within that category that make me go. These two would really mean a lot to uh, me as a fan to have one of them take home that title. Of course, I would love our triple R to make it because that is the one nomination that it has where Wakanda forever actually has other things up on the um, list for it to take home. Brandon, before we move on from that, how did you feel reading the not to not to nomination? So happy and so sad that RRR didn't get more buzz. Like it, it really seemed like it had a shot at either, maybe not all three, but like either picture director or visual effects and it got none of them and, and you know what it'll get pre it'll get performed live we need to see that outside this category moving on to others i gotta say it was so imp it was so impressive for myself to look into the animated feature category and go oh my gosh i've actually ah. seen i've actually seen all but one of these so brandon throwing a question to you real quick did you see sea beast it's the only one I haven't seen. It's the only one the plot device crew has not seen. But let's say, okay, CBS, love you. You're probably amazing. I'll go home and I'll watch you tonight on Netflix. Don't quote me on that. But if we're looking at our animated feature category, we've had so, we have some meaningful conversation around all four titles. I mean, we've talked Marcel. We've talked Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro's. We've talked, throw the other nominations at me. I can't remember them. But that being said. We haven't talked Puss in Boots on this show, actually. <laughs> you're right. We have not talked Puss in Boots last wish but uh, but listeners you know that brandon threw it up there for his top 10 and it is a well it, it has earned its spot i gotta say marcel takes it for me i think when i reviewed that list and i just really I, I sat with it for so long and thought like you know which one really moved me which one really affected me so heavily that i thought damn like 
it's such an impressive achievement and it's not live action, you know, of course it takes place in like live environments, but yeah, Marcel really takes it for me in that category. We appreciate and adore animation on this pod. So Brandon, I want to hear what your take is on these nominated on these nominations. Part of me is sad. Wendell and wild didn't get nominated. Like I, I kind of wish that was in there just because of the, again, like if you go back to my review, I stand by there's stuff in that movie that we've never seen stop motion animators develop before. And I really wish it got a knowledge. That being said, like, Four out of five of these are great. And I only say that Sea Beast isn't because, again, I haven't seen it. Um, But this is Pinocchio's to win. Like, put Pinocchio on your ballot. It's going to win. It has literally all the momentum locked into it. But if Marcel won, I'd be disappointed for, like, a minute. And then they'd probably get, like, Jenny Slate to come up and do the voice or, like, do, like, a little video of Marcel, like, in a podium somewhere. And I'd be happy. I cannot wait for the Oscars to, like, do a flash cut to the most minuscule zoom that they can, you know, manage and just show the tie, like, have a seat that is reserved and just have it so small for Marcel to show. That will be hilarious. Or actually, it'll exist underneath Jenny Slate's chair. You know what I mean? Yeah, but then we have to hear Jimmy Kimmel interviewing us. So, like, you're a show, huh? Oh, Oh, my gosh. Oh, the potential, man. We we had a discussion so long ago about what these hosts could have been. We can always hope for next year. Yep. those along with best pictures we have banshees and everything everywhere in the same space and so as much as i can say you know yes everything everywhere won out on my top 10 now taking the approach of within these specific categories where where does one knock out the other that's kind of the debate that i'm having so are you struggling to make the same decisions here or same predictions here with your own lists the technically two most nominated uh, movies this year are your top two of the year, which I find very fascinating. And then it's Elvis, which made neither of our lists, so it goes to show what we know. And then congrats, James Cameron. You've yeah. managed to have Avatar show. And you know what? Visual effects, Avatar, take it home. It's yours. You know what? Like, I, I will I pick somebody, pick up the award, whoever's listening to this pod, pick up the award, write James Cameron's name on the bottom of it, leave it on top of a door, and let it float in the o- ocean, and have James Cameron waddle into the sea and find it. <laughs> I think that that is well, so deserving for our, for our Cameron man. But other than that, I really don't want to see Avatar show up in any of these categories and take the win. Am I mean? No, because I think it doesn't really have a huge shot in the other ones that's nominated for. Like, it's not going to win picture. It, it just isn't. I'm sorry. Uh, it might win sound, but at this point, All Quiet and Top Gun have pretty much a lock on all the technical categories. And production design, frankly, I would have put Marcel in there because I think the production design is great in there. But Elvis is getting a lot of nods for production design in that whole team. So I don't think it has as much of a shot as we think, aside from visual effects, where, again, like you say, just throw it into the sea. You were saying earlier the thing of like, oh, everything everywhere getting so many nominations. haha. That's where I'm a little concerned <gasps> is because I look at Power of the Dog last year and I look at the notion of Academy voters who might be looking at 11 different categories and going, well, I would vote for Michelle Yeoh and Best Actress, but Everything Everywhere is nominated for 10 other categories. I could vote for any of those. Whereas, you know, El, uh, not Elvis. Um, what's another example? Uh, whereas like Living. Living is only in two categories for actor uh, screenplay. I should vote for those because it won't win anywhere else. And that's what I'm a little bit worried about because Power of the Dog got a little bit of that last year where I think that it split the vote between director and picture and that's why Coda won. Again, Everything Everywhere has a kind of universality and acclaim and just nerdy passion behind it that Power of the Dog never really had. But it's been sticking in the back of my head where I'm just like, if I'm a casual Oscar voter, how much is that overwhelming sense of yes about it going to really affect my sense of voting? I'm even looking back at these and going, is the repetition of these titles going to take away from like their potential to to win, to take home the awards that matter the most, I think, for them? 
that being said, it, it does feel good to see others that aren't as populated on this list. We're going to talk one of the nominations for Best Adapted Screenplay here in a moment from Ryan Johnson. We have Glass Onion making an appearance. That was amazing. I was, as I rewatched that film in prep for this podcast, I thought... Johnson really, he really owned this script here in this piece and it is, it just shines. And so I'm, it was a surprise, but a pleasant one at that. I really loved seeing his name pop up. I'm glad you brought that up because I want to pose the question to you because aside from Benoit Blanc, there's been a lot of discussion about whether Glass Onion is an adapted screenplay or not because it only has the one character. Do you agree? No, because here I go looking at the list and I said, oh, Ryan Johnson, Glass Onion, that is amazing. And as I was taking notes behind the picture, I thought, you know, we'll get into my review of it. And I want to save that juicy note for later. But as I was taking it, I thought all of this from just inspirational pieces, you know, we know that he's inspired by Agatha Christie and um, novels of that nature. But Glass Onion is his story. It isn't pulled like verbatim with plot points from another you know, from other source material, at least as far as I know. So uh, it, it was surprising to then follow up on the, on the category and see adapted screenplay. And I thought, huh, but then it, it kind of saved my heart because now the struggle of <laughs> original screenplay was now between again, everything everywhere and Banshees. So um, I'm very happy that Glass Onion can exist in its adapted space because I wanted to take home the award. Original, I think is going to Banshees because I think everything, everything everywhere, I think has pretty much directors on lock, if not picture. So like, that's going to be your bigger front runner. But Banshees is Martin McDonough. We love Martin McDonough. He's a theater pro. He's done, you know, uh, in Bruges and three billboards. Like we got to give it to Martin. You have to. Adapted is more interesting because living and women talking, first of all, you weren't there. I screamed when women talking got nominated. I couldn't believe it because that movie was dead. It wasn't going anywhere in award season. And And then it came in the last and I was just like, oh my God, yes. Uh, and it should, and absolutely should. But you're right, Glass Onion has a lot of competitors. Top Gun Maverick, if Top Gun does pull out some win out of its ass for screenplay, all the ballots are going out the window. Like, suddenly Top Gun becomes the front runner. You know, seeing Babylon make the list uh, oh. was no surprise. It is coming from um, Damien Chazelle. A title like Babylon, I think, can take home, deservingly, uh, awards for costuming as well as production design. Babylon, make no mistake, was a picture that I appreciated, and I hope we do revisit for a longer conversation. It's just a matter of where do you put that. And so uh, it made the list in in some capacity a major win for um, another great picture from Chazelle. There is a universe not too different from our own where that is getting swept this year, and I feel a little bit bad for Babylon fans that it didn't do as well. Costuming, no doubt. Like the costuming in Babylon is up top. Uh, who did it? Uh, Mary Zofres, I believe that's how you pronounce her name. Uh, her work is stupendous. Just the dress alone and the movie sets and everything. And that goes to production design as well. But again, production design this year was weirdly stacked for me. Like there were a lot of things that I wanted to get in and just didn't. Um, but again, like Margot Robbie didn't get in for actress, which I wanted to bring up. Um, and just a lot of other things for Babylon just didn't, for whatever reason they didn't. But it kind of goes to the idea of like the, the new iconography of Chazelle is not maybe as stable as maybe a lot of insiders had thought it was. The Batman makes an appearance. The Batman makes a couple of appearances and not for score. And I'm mad, <laughs> but everything else I'm very happy with. Absolutely. Hair and makeup. Gotta say. Was you, know what? you know what? It, it's, it's all for Colin Farrell and I get that, but it should. And with that being said, we are going to move on to our quick hits portion of the show. It's back, baby. Uh, this is one minute each where we get to each talk about one news topic that we didn't have a full time for discussion about that we probably don't have a full time for discussion about. Uh, but given to you guys in just around 60 seconds or each, they get posted to our TikTok page. That's TikTok at Plot Devices Podcast. You can go check them out after the show. Noah, I'm going to start with you. What is your quick hit for today? 
All right, Brandon, here we go. Let me go ahead and get my timer up. I will be beginning in three, a two, a one. Here we go. Today, I'm talking about Screenbox. It is a streaming service 100% committed to horror titles. It costs about $5.99 a month. Uh, you've heard of the streaming service like this before, whether you've subscribed to Shutterbox, but now, or not Shutterbox, sorry about that, whether you subscribe to Shutter, but now this is another service called Screenbox. And while I haven't checked it out myself, this is the piece of news that's going to intrigue me enough to actually subscribe for a month and see what it's all about. Today, I'm talking about three titles that are Indian, that come from Indian cinema, cinema, and they are remix of some horror classics that you may or may not be a fan of, um, but it may be worth checking out just to see um, another um, Cinemascape's take on some of these titles. So the three remakes that we are talking today are going to be Scream. We are going to talk about uh, Fright Night as well as, oh, what's the other one before I run out of time? It is The Eye, okay? And so here's a short snippet from the article on Bloody Disgusting that talks about the Bollywood remakes of the three titles that I mentioned. So the quote goes, now streaming exclusively on Screenbox is shh, that is with four S's and three H's. I'm over time. And it continues, the incredibly rare Indian Scream remake in which a mass killer meets musical numbers. Color be interested. Time. Brandon, I just wanted to say that here is another streaming service. Yes, it's completely devoted to horror, so I will be checking it out. But I'm less interested in the platform than I am interested in these titles. Like you're telling me we have uh, from Bollywood horror. Like I-, I haven't experienced that, that crossover, if it even is one. So it, this, the remake that I'm speaking on anyways is a 2003 film. So it's been buried for some time. It's time to, it's time to pull this treasure out of the ground and see, see how bright it shines over to you, Brandon. I was going to say, it's interesting because I never heard of Screenbox, nor have I heard of a Bollywood remake of Scream. And even though I have no intention of seeing Scream, that fascinates me. Uh, Moving on to my quick hits in three, two. So going back to the DC announcements, because yes, we haven't talked about that much. Actually, it doesn't really pertain to the announcements. It just pertains to a person involved in it. Uh, Viola Davis is going to be returning for the Waller show. uh, Once again, as Amanda Waller. But we have a bit more to that going forward. Um, We're recording this the afternoon, fourth wall break of the 65th Grammy Awards. Some of the nominations have already, some of the wins, I should say, have already been announced. Uh, Normally, this isn't a music show, but this technically isn't a music thing. Uh, One of the awards announced earlier was for Best Audiobook Narration and Storytelling Recording, which went to Viola Davis. That is big because now Viola Davis is the 18th ever EGOT winner. For those of you who aren't informed, that basically just means she is a Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony winner in no particular order for competitive awards across their respective bodies. Uh, Davis is actually the uh, Davis is actually the fifth Black EGOT winner after Jennifer Hudson's Tony win from last year. Uh, just writing down the stats real quick: Davis won her first Tony in 2001 for King Hedley II, her first uh, her first Emmy in 2015 for How to Get Away with Murder, and her first Oscar in 2017 for Fences before winning today's Grammy. She also won a second Tony in 2011 for the stage version of Fences, so she's technically an EGOT. Like, just with two T's, if you can emphasize that enough. Uh, I think this is fantastic. She's well-deserved for it. You know, the EGOT winner is totally just an arbitrary thing. But I think it's fantastic to hear and time. EGOT to t Yes. Leave it to Davis to achieve an achievement like this. Uh, well, to be on the edge of achieving um, such a milestone. That's that's amazing news to hear. And what was it again that, the, that she lent her voice to? What was the material? Uh, Finding Me. It's her uh, memoir she released, uh, I think, a year or two ago, I want to say. Lovely. Without further ado, we're diving into our full review portion of today's show. Brandon is talking Netflix's Glass Onion to start off. Uh, and once again, 
this is this has made the Oscar nomination list, baby. Brandon, tell us more. In only one nomination, but we'll uh, we'll take what we can get for it. Uh, Ryan Johnson is back, baby, with the long-anticipated sequel to Knives Out that uh, a lot of us have been clamoring for ever since 2019's Knives Out. Absolutely blew the roof off of what murder mysteries could be. Uh, Ryan Johnson once again comes back to write and direct this as well as produce it for Netflix with an ensemble star cast and bringing back Daniel Craig as the one remaining element of the original Knives Out back to this. We pick up actually during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. We follow a motley crew of, as the film calls them, disruptors. Leslie Odom Jr. as uh, Lionel Toussaint, who is a head scientist for this uh, strange tech corporation. Uh, we have a kinetic governor candidate uh, played by Catherine Hahn, uh, Claire DiBella. We have Duke Cody, a men's rights streamer played by uh, Dave Batista, along with his girlfriend. Um, oh, God. Whiskey. Thank you. Played by Madeline Klein, if you're an Outer Banks fan. We also have Birdie, played by uh, Kate Hudson, who is a social media influencer slash supermodel with her assistant Peg, played by Jessica Henwick along with Janelle Monet as Helen Brand, uh, the ex-partner of Edward Norton's tech giant, who we follow throughout the movie. Uh, Edward Norton plays Miles Braun, who is a self-righteous billionaire, Elon Musk pastiche type character, whatever. Uh, Miles essentially sends them all this strange uh, puzzle box contraption, one of which ends up on Benoit Blanc's desk, again played by Daniel Craig. He takes the box, solves it, and meets the disruptors on Braun's private island, which has the titular glass onion, which is just a giant observatory kind of deal. And everything seems to be going fine. Uh, Braun doesn't really think much of this. He kind of sees uh, Benoit as like, oh, you're the key to my murder mystery game that I'm setting up for me and my friends. And then sure enough, someone does die. And now we're back to, you know, knives out shenanigans and great banter and all the things that he knew from the first one, but done a little bit differently. Uh, Noah, we've never actually, I think, talked just frankly about the first Knives Out movie, but going back to uh, what that film was, what was your reaction going into hearing that Netflix was essentially giving Ryan Johnson the keys to the kingdom for this and a third one, which is coming as well? And what did you think of Glass Onion as a successor to, again, blowing the doors off the genre that the first one did? I really think that if it had been exclusive to theaters and not a Netflix tie-in release, it would have had a different impression on audiences, on larger audiences. But I'm still happy that I made it out to see it. I did wait for the Netflix release date to come. I hadn't checked out Glass Onion in theaters. I believe you had. I did. I got to check it out in the limited Thanksgiving release, and it was great. I can only imagine what seeing it with a large crowd would feel like, because having seen Knives Out in a theater setting like that, it was tremendous. So uh, moving on to Glass Onion, it is, it's not really the succeeding story for what you experience in Knives Out. And I believe I read a piece and I don't know where it was, so quote me if I'm, or don't quote me if I'm wrong, but it was Ryan Johnson stating that he had advocated for Glass Onion to be the title itself so that it didn't have some type of uh, knives out lure because this isn't a knives out story. It's Glass Onion. And so he is again inspired by the, t- the stories he read from writers like Christie where every novel and every mystery is its own name. It's not, um, you know, insert title, a, it's not Maltese Falcon. Then the, then the next book going insert title, a Maltese Falcon mystery. Like it just doesn't work like that. And I, I respect him for taking that approach. It's unfortunate they didn't follow through with that or weren't able to do that, but Hey, uh, it's the same reason why, um, we can look at a title like Birds of Prey and why didn't that one work? Oh, well, people thought that it should have Harley Quinn and the uh, fantabulous emancipation of that, 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 <laughs> neither here nor there. 
Glass Onion, location, location, location. Not only is the movie titled Glass Onion, but as Brandon mentions, there's this huge observatory on the top of this mansion belonging to the billionaire character, uh, Miles, that just looks impressive. Like, it's visually astounding. And I know, I'm assuming it's not real. It's obviously not real, right? I think the interiors are real. I don't think the exterior, obviously. Is, okay, because I didn't I, I don't think so. Exactly. Like, I was like, it kind of looks real. <laughs> but that being said... um, I I love a an isolated story like this one tells. And even in a Knives Out mystery, we have the comparison of, yes, it takes place like in this family's mansion, but we do have plenty of time that we spend traversing the city with the detective and following uh, the various characters. Whereas here, we are locked in on this island. A big note for me is the costuming here. When I spent some time looking at each character... This is characterization. Like this is uh, such excellent uh, roundedness provided to each individual character. Uh, maybe on purpose, there isn't a lot provided to Jessica Henwick's character, considering she's like the um, social media um, public PR like person for um, Sweetie's character or Tweety's character. I- I'm not Birdie. sure. What- Birdie's character. You're on the right path. I'm going there, man. Um, but that being said, characterization is, I think, what really stands out in a film like this. You have such big names coming to this title, just as Johnson worked with in the first one. Um, Janelle Monet, Kate Hudson returning to the big screen after, I don't know when the last film I saw her in, uh, Dave Batista, Catherine Hahn. The list goes on and on and on. Balancing such bold characters alongside Blanc, who we're remaining consistent with from the first film is such a task, but man, it is why it, he deserves that adapted screenplay spot and better yet the win. I, I really want him to take that home. Uh, I have more notes, but I wanted to take a pause on those characters and the balance of them with their, the actors behind them and then bringing in somebody we are supposed to keep up with. Rick Heinrichs, the production designer, uh, who actually worked with Ryan Johnson before on The Last Jedi and was nominated for a bunch of Pirates of the Caribbean films, uh, and Jenny Egan, who's the costume designer. How the hell the Oscars overlooked them, I have no idea, but like they deserve their praise here um, because every character is so well-designed and well-flushed out and just so well-designated as who they are, but they're not just archetypes. Like My, my favorite reaction to this, and I'm forgetting who tweeted it out, forgive me, but someone tweeted out basically like, I love the Knives Out movies because they feel like the first of a wave of 2020s reflective time capsule movies that are examining that decade for what it is, good and bad. And I didn't realize it until this, and until I saw Knives Out like a week or so ago on TV, where I was like, yeah, I think that's what Ryan Johnson's trying to do. Like, yes, he's trying to, as you mentioned, you know, live up to, Ag- live up to Agatha Christie and the Faro books and all that, but also try and make these really scathing depictions of where 2020s culture in all of its facets is going, whether you're talking about like in this movie specifically, you know, billionaire culture or streaming culture or fashion culture or, you know, the politics sphere where that's going with the Catherine Hans character. Like there are things about this movie that just really follow through the more that I started to decipher them more. And again, it goes back to that screenplay, which like, again, congrats on the Oscar nomination for that. But it's so clever because it doesn't just it doesn't just rely on the same old tricks as Knives Out. It tries to go bigger. It tries to go a bit bolder. There's a big old switch up in the middle of the movie that completely recontextualizes it that I have mixed feelings on. But I love the ambition of what it goes for and how Ryan Johnson trusts you as an, as an audience member to go, oh, this is leaning back to this, 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 and this. And just ties it together with, again, these great quips and these great one-liners that just make the whole thing a total blast. An hour and nine minutes in, we have Blanc, you know, gathering the troop in the main hall and saying, 
uh, it's time to finish this. You know, it's time to unravel. Oh my gosh. It's time to peel this onion for its inner layers. Like the script is hilarious in that sense. Right. But I could not remember if this was, if this was or wasn't what Johnson pulled in the knives out mystery in the knives out movie, because here we are in the, in the damn near middle of the film and going, Oh, this is where everything is going to be resolved. Like, okay, we've reached our final setting. We've reached our final entourage of characters. And this is where the end game unfolds. I couldn't believe it. Then we go through our flashback sequences and we start uh, looking into the bedrooms, the halls around corners that we weren't shown in that first hour. And that's where the film becomes, that's where the film happens. Like that's where the story really happens. Um, at least the pieces that matter to reach the end. And I, I'm a big fan. Like I really was commending how Johnson approached his storytelling, at least for glass onion. And um, if it's any note to how he approaches stories in the future, like I said, I couldn't tell if it was familiar or not from his first work in this space. So let's see if, you know, I'm assuming this is his craft. Like, I hope he does return to this kind of mystery genre. And when he does, the man knows how to deliver a a mystery and how to set it unfold without you, you know, expecting the same tricks. It's not something that we can say of every director. Yeah, we, it's funny because we haven't, we're probably not going to talk about uh, his TV series, uh, Poker Face on Peacock, but apparently that's in kind of the same vein of like murder mysteries and whodunit nonsense. Wow. Yeah, no, thank you for mentioning that. I'll have to take a note of that. Peacock, it is Poker Face. Got it. Um, but it's funny that you, but I, going back to that statement, it's like when I rewatched Knives Out a couple of weeks ago, first of all, I still love it, but I love it slightly more than Glass Onion just because, again, of that middle of the road twist where Knives Out to me kept moving forward. It kept building on top of itself where like, here's the initial thing. Here's the layers to it. You know, ironically enough, it's not the onion one, but it builds more of a layer to it. But like it does this, this and this, and it feels so satisfying to go through as a viewer. Whereas I could totally see, and luckily this hasn't happened. But I remember watching Glass Onion for the first time and thinking, if I wasn't completely in tune with the shtick of it all, with the characters of it all, that switch up in, you know, the, what was it, like the hour and nine minute mark or whatever you said, like at that point, it would feel jarring to me. And it feels like a bit of a writing technique to go, I've written to my logical conclusion and I can only go backwards from here. I know it's not doing that. It just felt like that to me both times. And I've watched it twice so far. It felt to me both times of that of just like, okay, I've gotten to this point, I just couldn't think of anything further, so now I have to go back and recontextualize all this, which should be great, and I love it for what it is, and I obviously all the reveals that happen, and again, Blanc is such a charismatic character, and Daniel Craig just does such a great job that it enables you to be carried through all of it. It was just the one element in the movie where I felt like, okay, you're pushing a little bit, Ryan. Well, push he did for our performers, for our actors. Let's talk about the cast. Let's talk about Janelle Monet. Oh my goodness. I mean, look, I have loved Janelle Monet since 2011 for the Arc Android, and ever since then I've been following her career endlessly. And what they do on this movie is, I think, the pinnacle in terms of their acting ability thus far. Like, yes, Moonlight and Hidden Figures, they're great, but like here they get to play such a character. They play, they get to play a character with such hidden depth to them and such hidden truth to where you're trying to pull them out. And the movie is, it's encouraging you as an audience to really fight with this character where everyone is so bombastic and so out there that she's the one character you can't get a grip on until the movie forces you to get a grip on her and it's totally worth it and uh her chemistry with daniel craig is fantastic and like the way that they write her they write her more into the story as the movie goes on again that sounds very basic the way i'm saying it but like her as a character i consistently i believed her through line maybe more than anyone else and was 
and was satisfied with her conclusion maybe more than any other character. Hell yeah. When we look at Monet's acting career and with a title as recent as Annabelle or Annabellum, it might be called. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the anticipation I had for that film and then watching it going, Ooh, I think that Monet is better than this. Next time. Next time. Yeah. You know, I'll get her next. We'll get her next time. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the next time. Like here is the, um, just powerhouse of a performer, whether it's in the music space or now in the cinema space. And thank you for mentioning Moonlight, like even coming in for a minute, um, for minute amounts of screen time and to emit the emotions that she had. This is another clear example of where that max potential lies. Um, looking at the cast list when we first had early conversations around this title, I was curious as to like, what's going to go down here because it was clear in the first movie that like Jamie Lee Curtis was going to be a standout or Chris Evans, of course, Ana de Admas, I think in watching it became a standout. I wasn't sure if in the marketing, if like we really had that must like be that standup character. Well, here in Glass Onion, I think it's the same thing where you see, um, I see Kate Hudson, I see Dave Batista and I see Janelle Monet. And I think I had expected for maybe with all the attention from WandaVision, maybe I was going Catherine Hahn is going to be like very standout, but um, rest assured Janelle Monet here is holding the reins and she is one of the primary focuses in this film. Um, call her a focal character. And um, that being said, it, it was just um, lovely to see her fill up so much screen time and really give us this type of performance. I'm not sure I missed it, but I just really, I really am happy now that I have it. But it's interesting because you bring up Ana de Armas, and I, that's, that's a good transition for um, for Daniel Craig, because in the first movie, I don't consider him a lead, but in here, he's very much a lead character. Like, he drives the agency. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Okay. And, like, first of all, he's terrific, and I think he might be even better in this. I'm a little mad that he and Ryan Johnson chose not to go the angle of, of Blanc having a different accent each film, which I think would have been just hilarious and really clever, but whatever. Brandon. This film allows Blanc to be with himself, like to be himself. And that is another take on the character that, you know, I'm kind of coming to. Like, of course, when you watch this film, you'll get the sense that like, yes, he's this goofy, like figuring out what to do with his time in between cases. Like he really itches for like that, that um the uh, excitement (laughs) that comes with figuring out another, another case. But in the first film, that's all he was asked to do, or that's much of what I remember from his performance and from his character. But here, no, he's an actual, like he, he is allowed that kind of depth and he's a goofy person. And I love seeing that Craig pulls it off effortlessly. And like, that's the thing is I, I know people have been joking, like, oh, he's more iconic than Bond, but like, give him another film or two. Yeah, maybe. All right, Brandon, final notes before ratings. Uh, Nathan Johnson's music is great. It was great in the first one. It's great in this one. Um, and again, just the jokes. The jokes are great. Like you could go, you could fill a book with how many one-liners Ryan Johnson probably has in his head. Um, and I'll simply just say the, it's not so stupid. And yet it's, it's just as stupid as you think line is a classic of last year. This movie starts out with like a very, uh, it's reminiscent of Hellraiser with the type of device like unraveling that they have. Yeah, the puzzle box. Each of the main characters are sent a puzzle box that they have to uh, solve um, in order for this invitation to be, in order for this invitation to come spitting out. And uh, once we transition over to (laughs) Monet's character, she is of the mind to just actually hack at the thing until the invitation comes out. And, uh, um, you know, an action like that uh, crossed 
or uh, compared to what all the other characters are doing, which is like solving this mystery together and being as one really sets the, um, sets the idea for what tensions are going to be explored throughout this film. And they do that so well. Um, this is going to be a nine out of 10 for me. I really enjoyed glass onion. I am so like, I have to sit with, I have to, really dig into my mind and be like, no, why aren't you giving this a 10? Because I think it is deserving of a 10. If there's something that pulling, that's pulling me back to a nine, I would have to say it's... See, this is hard. Me and Brandon are having conversations outside of this <laughs> when we are trying to eliminate the uh, numerical rating system. But that being said, a nine felt more appropriate. I know this film um, has got a lot of like excitement out of me and damn, it told a good story. It has amazing characters and an amazing cast behind them to uh get a job like this done effortlessly just like um craig's take on the blonde character i would be curious to see if he does do like two or more films how it stacks up against his bond uh iterations but um over to you brandon this is a nine out of ten for me and um very much a rewatch yeah i put this in my own mentions for my top films of uh 2022 it's a nine for me it's fantastic uh this is an excellent murder mystery it's excellently written it's so it's so fun. Like, I don't mean to be like that simple. It's just so gosh darn fun. And like Ryan Johnson is playing the audience like a freaking orchestra, much like Jordan Peele did with Nope and all of his film. But like just understanding the momentum that the characters need to go through, the arcs that need to be established. And again, like the actual sociopolitical commentary of the movie is really capable of dissecting about 2020s culture that I think moving down the line is going to be examined a lot more closely and be um, really revered more. Again, the whole cast are fantastic, but like Craig and Monet are, I think, the biggest standouts. They get the most meat to delve into. The score is great. The production design, the costumes on a technical level, it's fantastic. Um, yeah, make three, four, five more of these. If you're this smart and clever about them, uh, I have no issue with Ryan Johnson taking this on his uh, on his shoulders about this because he really knows what he's doing. And they're just freaking blast. And release them in theaters next time because, again, Noah deserves to see this. A lot of people deserve to see this in, like, packed theaters with, you know, people screaming and hooting and hollering about this because they're a lot of fun, and I'm glad that we have movies like them. We're moving now to a theater release. We are talking Storm Reed, starring picture. It is missing. Uh, Brandon's got all the details for you on the next, like, uh, cyber interface. Are they using a Mac always? Brandon, tell us more. Did you see the first surging from 2018? Yes. Yeah, so, okay, you know the gist of it, but, like, for those of you who are not necessarily in the wear, uh, Searching was a movie in 2018 uh, directed by Sebo Hanian and Anish Chaganti. Uh, they were basically these two guys, whereas they say, like, with these, like, uh, like half a dozen editors, they put together a movie that was told entirely on uh, phone screens and laptop screens, uh, essentially, like, unfriended, but much more of, like, a true crime thriller thing. Uh, John Cho was in that Dipper Messing as well. I thought it was terrific, uh, as did a lot of people. And now it's gotten a standalone sequel in Missing. This is directed now by Will Merrick and Nick Johnson in their directorial debuts. They edited the first one, so um, editing this time is Austin Keeling and uh, Ariel Zakowski. I apologize for pronouncing them incorrectly. We follow June Allen, played by, as Noah mentioned, Storm Reed, of course, from A Wrinkle in Time and Upcoming The Last of Us, a lot of other huge things. She's really blowing up as an actress. Um, she is a young girl who is about to graduate high school. Uh, her mom, played by Nia Long, is caring, but is out of the house a lot. She's dating a new guy uh, played by Ken Long, who seems nice enough. Uh, they've been dating for a while. They're about to go on a trip to Columbia. She is supposed to go pick them up from uh, LAX at the airport. Uh, she films them very creatively, uh, you know, so everything in this movie is filmed up until the point that it isn't. We'll get to it. Um, but yeah, she films them, you know, trying to get back and they don't. And so she gets worried. She calls, uh, she calls her family's lawyer. She tries calling around and no one is picking up, not her mom, not the boyfriend, not anyone. So she asks a, 
essentially like an errand runner uh, named Javi, played by uh, Joaquin de Almeida, who if any of you are Fast and Furious fans, he played the villain in Fast Five. That's where I knew him from. Um, but he pops up in this. He's kind of a single dad uh, running around uh, Colombia doing his thing. But she essentially requests his help to find the security tapes and find any evidence of where her parents are. And because of that and because of her love of true crime dramas, she goes down this whole rabbit hole of what happened to my parent? Uh, what happened to my mom and her boyfriend? Did I know that much about them in the first place? And what the heck is this thing that I've gotten myself into? Am I over my if I am I in over my head? Uh, Noah, as you mentioned, this is a trippy, very serious kind of true crime thriller, but it's also weirdly funny at times. And I think that was kind of thing the first searching had, which is that it was also like Glass Onion, very much reflective of the 2020s. But in this uh, very specifically, our reliance on technology and in my money, Missing does a pretty effective job with it. Um, Did the shtick hit you as much as it did the first one? Because I know that's been the main critique that it's just not as fresh as the first one. Huh. I will say... uh your use of the word shtick, impeccable, Brandon. Additionally, um, I looked back at the synopsis and plot details around looking because, sorry, searching, not the, not the, um, queer HBO series starring Merlay, uh, Murray Bartlett. Murray Bartlett. Sorry. He's just on my mind. Wink, wink. If you're watching The Last of Us episode three, Murray Bartlett's on your mind in February of 2023. I can't imagine why. These are rhetorical questions. Okay, here we go. Uh, we are talking searching, uh, at least for this comment. And that is because I think when I revisited the plot for searching, it was incredible to realize that they reached that ending, you know, through the use of like this type of interface that they're using for a storytelling method. It's, it's incredible. You know, I'm thankful that we don't have titles like unfriended to look back at as like the standard for this medium, right? Like thankfully unfriended didn't tarnish what filmmakers believe they could do with this, uh, with this style. I mean, if we want to stay in the horror space, we can even make notes of that movie that came out during quarantine titled host that came out on shutter. Um, maybe you heard buzz about it because I know you're not, <laughs> I'll say it 10,000 more times. I heard about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but now we're approaching this story missing. So, um, did it live up to the, the punch that was expected? Um, you know what? I'd say, yeah, I, I really liked the performances here. And I liked how we take a complete 180 um, on the other side of the fence. Instead of exploring a father chasing after their child, they just ask themselves, how can we tell a compelling story of a, of a teenage girl looking for her mother who is lost in a, um, in a foreign country, you know, a country outside of home in the U S what are the story threads there that we can follow? Okay. How do we make this, um, interesting? How do we make this, you know, out there, but not completely unbelievable. And the, the tricks that they pull, I would say are, are enough for me to be entertained as a viewer. I mean, there was no, I think there is not a moment where I found myself, you know, yawning or kind of like rolling my eyes at the types of reveals that were happening because it felt like to get there, it made sense. There was reason in this film. And that's what I appreciated coming out the theater. Shout out to Natalie Kasabian, who's the producer on the film, who liked my tweet about it. Uh, thank you, Natalie. I really appreciate that. Um, and it's funny because Ask me about that whole thing of the shtick, and let's not make words. Min- missing is part of a shtick. Like, it's the idea of, let's tell a story through computer monitors, which could so easily fall into, as you mentioned, like, cliched schlock so easily, and which is why I think the first searching works so well. Um, but another part of that, but another part of that is that searching also had the thing of 
and admittedly it's been a long time since i've watched it but i remember you know concurrently some of the overarching details but i remember john cho's character the big appeal about that was that he was a guy who didn't really know technology quote unquote like he had to learn about how you know stitcher boards work and like finding you know police resources and all these different things and that's why it made it kind of compelling as an audience member to go like oh if you were in his shoes what would you look towards Whereas Storm Reed's character in this is very much the opposite. It's a child who is raised in the digital age, who is, you know, raised on true crime dramas. We see in the in the opening scene, what's really clever is there's a true crime version of the first searching movie that she's watching and that, and that she gets influenced by, which I thought was kind of clever. It's that whole kind of flipping of the of the dynamic to go, okay, what happens when someone knows tech and know and thinks they know like surveillance and you know true crime aesthetics? What happens when someone in their life is in trouble and how do they respond to that? And I thought that was kind of interesting. I'm sitting here asking myself the question of, did they do enough with June's character being an adolescent to make it the story that they did? And, um, you know, I think the biggest marker of them using her age was that she could not directly pursue her mother in this, in this other country. And I think that that's the biggest thing because any other child that is already an adult could immediately, I think, follow them. And that's just where my head goes. Maybe it's not what what goes through, you know, your head, um, listener. But yeah, I'm just thinking they did the right thing here, flipping the script in that way. It is funny, like Brandon mentions, to see her relationships, even if they're just the message threads that are on the side of our main conversation or our main focal point in the in the film, because we're looking at a computer screen, yes, there are times where like it's bordered out and we're only looking at one set of messages, but I admired, uh, you know, it's not a set that they're building, but they're trying to create a real landscape for your, for the audiences to witness this desktop as something that is being used. So you have so many notes in the background, you have so many, um, screenshots and you name it that exists on June's desktop. You know, they're creating a believable space and that's easier said than done. Um, I always thought that the character who lost his smartwatch was going to come back into the scene, but he really never yeah. does. And then uh, that was one funny thing. And then the second thing is they really are milking how far a task rabbit, quote unquote, in another country would go to help, uh, you know, this merchant who is thousands and thousands of miles away to track down you know who knows even what they're getting paid but hey storytelling cinema it works yeah i'll admit by a certain point in the second half some of the narrative things became okay you're stretching it like like we talked a little bit about knives out like things that i was going okay ryan you're taking it too far no this might actually be taking it too far like again you mentioned the task rabbit thing there's some narrative threads that come back into into play that i thought Okay, sure, but if that makes sense, then where was he in this, this, and this? Um, and they work well enough, like the movie still, and again, like I think it's all about tone and mood. Like the fact that this movie up until those points is so gripping and so, as you mentioned, enveloping of its own landscape, I did care, but not enough for me to be like, okay, I'm dozing off or checking my phone. I really admired the relationship that was uh, portrayed between June and her mom. Um, that's where some of the comedy came through. That's where a lot of the heart, um, of course, that's where it has its moments to shine. Um, and, and Storm Reed as a performer, you are only able to appreciate her so much in a show like Euphoria, which is where I'm familiar with the actor. But then she takes on a project like this. And I think it really is a it's a major plus for what she's able to achieve as a performer and uh, shows like how, how she works as a standalone. So 
I would not be surprised if um oh she's gonna go she's gonna get more attention too once we explore her in the mentioned series The Last of Us. But uh, that being said, this is an excellent title um to add to like Storm Reed's catalog of work and then Nia Long as her mother, just amazing. Well, it's also funny because we talked about uh, Petite Maman on the last episode, and one of the things we talked about was that notion of understanding your parents and understanding them at a certain point in their life. And this is kind of the opposite of that, where June has to understand her mother not as she was younger, but as she's getting older. Like, she's lost her father. She doesn't really have anyone aside from June, and even June herself is being very distant in her own, like, you know, Snapchat-filled sociography type space. And she kind of has to understand, like, her mom just wanting someone to connect with, and she finds Ken Lung's character. And whether or not he's a good guy doesn't matter. It's the idea of, like, oh, my mom is human, and I kind of have to rectify my own prejudices against that. It was both a little uncomfortable, but also very endearing to witness the... uh, There's a portion of the film where uh, June goes into the dating profile of her mom and like goes through the messages between her and this man that she's um, vacationing with. And that was the, the mark where I was like, Ooh, these are not messages you want to read. You never want to read like your parents' dating profile and um, the messages that they exchange. Who knows what they send? Who knows if th- those memes are really like, what if their meme game is so poor? But that being said, then it became this really touching moment between two people who uh, late in life are, can I say late in life? Who are um, later in life connecting on an emotional level. It caught me in the theater, like really going like, Oh, like I was, I was feeling really, um, admirable of like what they portrayed, even just through those messages. And I mean, it's not like it's an unfamiliar feeling. There are plenty of people out there who do feel real uh, connections based on the messages that they exchange with anyone who's either close or not. This movie gets really uh, unnerving at the end in the third act. And that's, that's to its credit. Like I'm happy that um, we had those dips in tension and then uh, pick back up for the, for the final act. I don't think I have more to say on this. Um, just to wrap around, yeah, just to wrap around my points, um, uh, Reed is an excellent performer here doing what she, doing what is asked of her in this type of setting where she does have to kind of be face front for much of the time. No, it's not incredibly believe, believe, incredibly believable with how much time she keeps like just her frontal camera on for like us to see, but you're not supposed to ask those kinds of questions or make those types of um, expectations for a film like this. It does what it can and much of what it does works well. Uh, so this, that, that honestly feels like my rating, but here I'll go ahead and toss to you, Brandon, before I, before I give my number, before I assign a number value to this picture, uh, over to you, Brandon. Yeah. For me, this is a solid eight and I gave the first, I think a nine, um, which I think was again, just because of the novelty of it and going, God, I've never seen a movie like this grip me so much. And this is a similar thing where I think it's a bit more unbelievable. The shtick doesn't quite land. Uh, some of the editing can feel a little bit too fast and furious compared to the first one. Uh, but that being said, when it works, it's really, really effective. Like, again, you, I didn't actually mention it, but yeah, Storm Reed is fantastic. And I know there's only going to be great stuff from her going forward. I can't wait to see her in Last of Us to see, you know, what you keep building up all the hype about. Um, but again, so much of her performance is terrific. Nia Long and Ken Lung and supporting cast are all great. Um, Joaquin de Almeida, who I have to bring up again, who's fantastic. The editing are the true heroes of this. Um, you know, going through all of that footage and assembling all this piecemeal tech thriller type stuff i think is not an easy feat and what they managed to assemble within this time frame is truly an incredible feat but again like the story as a whole of a child of technology using what is at her disposal to try and find her loved ones i think 
yes, there's a lot of things the movie doesn't really go into that it probably should, but I think as a whole and as a purely emotional, visceral experience and as a movie of the 2020s trying to address those ideas, I think it does better than most. Uh, again, it's playing in theaters right now if you get a chance to go see it. You don't need to have seen the first Searching, by the way. You really don't. Like, it's completely standalone. It's it's really effective, and I think you should check it out. This is an 8 out of 10 I had so much fun with this movie. Seeing it with a friend in theater was a great experience just to um, kind of give each other the side eye for every sly moment that we witnessed on screen between uh, Reed's characters with her friends, Reed's character with her uh, random, I can't say random, but her, uh, I think his name is Javi, who, who is there as her task rabbit of the country. Um, the, the hilarity that comes from some of the surprises that I won't mention here because this is going to be spoiler free. Um, yeah. Eight out of 10 for me. I think that the only mistake these filmmakers can make is if they try and pull off a third movie and relate it somehow to these vocab words of searching and missing. We got to, we're going to venture away from that. I hope, but if there's a team to do it, it's these guys. Which that's the thing. You made the joke earlier. That one has to be called looking. Well, they can't because then they're just going to be confused and they're going to be combating fans of yeah. HBO's looking, which, by the way, there's a series streaming and the movie is actually amazing. Please go check it out. It's got Jonathan Groff. We didn't talk about Knock, the, Knock at the Cabin today, but it is something that is happening. And that is all that's going to be said about that. Right now, we're going to move into the other side of tech cautionary tales, uh, Megan, which has been getting, in my opinion, way too much buzz. And I'd like for my co-host, Noah Guzman, to tell me why I'm wrong. So, Noah... What the heck is the deal with Megan? You know me, always going to talk about a horror movie release. And this time I'm taking a solo view, solo review on Megan or M3 again. Uh, this is the latest from director Gerard Johnstone with writers Akila Cooper and James Wan. Now, I know you know of Wan's work, whether it be in the Insidious franchise or honestly, you name it. Wan is attached to so many projects these days and many are on the horizon. You've even seen Aquaman, I'm sure, as we are always... Uh, uh, big fans of comic book iterations here on the pod. So we're talking Megan today. Megan, I'm going to pull this synopsis here for you off of IMDb. A robotics engineer at a toy company builds a lifelike doll that begins to take on a life of its own. Okay. Notable cast members are Allison Williams, who you'll remember from Get Out. She plays Gemma and Gemma is the aunt and would be guardian for Katie. Katie is played by Violet McGraw. Uh, Katie is a young girl who lost her parents, unfortunately, in a car accident. And so now she is being taken care of by Gemma's character. But who is Gemma? Gemma is a toy developer, right? She makes these sci-fi, uh, like I say sci-fi, but I mean like very techie based toys, like kind of like robots, uh, for the aggressive kind of like overseeing insulting CEO in this character, David played by Ronnie Chen. He's actually really funny because he takes on that role with such uh, ease, you know, of playing this kind of snarky, really asshole of the company. Uh, and Gemma is tasked at from the beginning of the film. Yes. She has to take Katie under her care, but she, is tasked with developing this new product, this new commercial toy that is like the next iteration of a thing, but it's an economic version. Now, she has to develop that with her team, uh, who consists of her two friends, Cole and Tess. Um, maybe I'll get into the performances later, but for now, you just need to know that she's part of a small team. And though she has to develop this product, now that she has Katie in her care, she realizes that like it's kind of hard effort to connect with this young girl when she has never been a parent herself. So 
She sees that Katie is kind of in need of a companion. She has to develop a toy. Two birds, one stone. She develops Megan. Megan is a completely like self-sufficient AI doll um, who is not like Chucky because she's not not supposed to engage with you. She is kind of like your best friend. So she becomes a companion to Katie, kind of doing uh, a lot of her fun activities with her, being able to educate her on certain, certain topics and being programmed to allow her to do certain things and like persuade her to do others. She's also an excellent artist. Like she does crazy, like AI art with her hands. Um, and something of note is that Megan, the doll is rarely seen not styling. Okay. The doll has gorgeous hair. Uh, they're so expressive. She's so expressive in her voice acting, which is all credit to Amy Donald, who plays the voice of M3 again, um, or Megan. So expressive in the voice acting, but still so disassociated that she's creepy. Like the eyes are close enough to a human. Yes, she has like a human girl face, but she's a doll. Like her lips move like she is a doll. So it's very hard to just connect with something like that on screen. And the film knows it. Like the film takes advantage of our disconnect with something like that and flips it on us, allowing us to, you know, have scenes with Megan where she actually makes us laugh, where she's so frightening, she's funny, or she's so, she's so, uh, disconnected that it's the two sides of the same coin. You know, she's so disconnected, she's frightening. And then there's other times where she's so frightening, she's hilarious. Um, I think that's a big plus for this film is that while it is a horror feature, it's PG-13. So no, you're not going to get like decapitated heads, like flying at you with blood, but you are going to get some pretty unsettling scenes involving the doll and the human characters around her. But let's talk about the development of this doll. Not only does her look change throughout the film as she becomes completely unhinged, even as um an AI doll, she becomes unhinged in what her reality is and what she wants her existence to mean not only is Megan self-sufficient, but now she wants power. Like now she wants control over her autonomy. And when you're dealing with that kind of uh, creator and their creation, like the Frankenstein story, um, I'm not sure if this is connected to that at all, but I will just say that that relationship between Megan and Gemma was one to explore throughout the film. And I, and I did like their back and forth. Um, I'm not going to lie. This film is campy as hell. Megan has like song breaks. She's wit. She's, she has flair in her expressions. Um, and in her exclamations, like she, like I said, she's both frightening and she's funny. Uh, Allison Williams as the lead, she has just impeccable delivery, whether it be her. Sorry. I was just thinking about like her lines and get out when she's like, you know, you mean these keys? Um, but you remember the character. She actually you know, gets the job done in this film. And I was very impressed. This is not a movie where you're anticipating like the first kill, you know, you're not just waiting around for the bloodshed to start because the world building around Megan feels so authentic. Like it feels so great. It feels very lived in to the point that once the film reaches its end, you're like, damn, this was really a fun ride. Well, don't be discouraged because Megan 2.0 is actually arriving soon. I think that it's in development or it's soon to be in development. So I'm excited that there's a sequel to this film because it was so much fun. And it, it was, you know, for somebody who grew up really terrified of Chucky, like honestly, deeply uh, unnerved by the Chucky doll in the Chucky series. I watched this film now as an adult and go, yeah. I love this. I think that I had just so much fun with it. It's exactly what I wanted. 
uh, for a film that is reminiscent of like the killer doll that was so prevalent in like that slasher film of Chucky and in the franchise, though it's kind of gone down downhill. This isn't a bash Chucky review. Okay. This is a Megan review, but with all that being said, I'm going to go ahead and give Megan a 7.5 out of 10. This is such a great horror flick that I think everyone should check out. I believe if I think it is too late to catch in theaters, it most definitely is. If you get it, you're lucky, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this appears like on HBO max soon enough or another streaming platform. But if I find out, and I'm able to bring it up in the pod. I'll be sure to mention it. But till then, I would just hold out until Megan is available for VOD and renting on your mobile because it's definitely one to watch, one you'll enjoy. And even if you're a bit squeamish, even if you're a bit scared, she's a doll. You have nothing to be afraid of. That'll do it for episode 43 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Listen, while we all have you, social media links will be in the description as usual. But if you're just listening, uh, Twitter, Instagram at Plot Devices Pod, TikTok at Plot Devices Podcast, and RSS feed, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify at Plot Devices. Go check us out there. I want to thank my co-hosts as usual, Noah Guzman. Noah, thank you as always for joining me. What do you have going on in your life right now? And uh, what are you watching, reading, enjoying? I have just wrapped uh, Paul Tremblay's novel on uh, the M. Night Shyamalan adapted movie. It's uh, The novel is called Cabin at the End of the World. I highly recommend you go check out that book in preparation for Knock at the Cabin starring Dave Bautista, Jonathan Groff. I did check it out. We'll see if I have some words about it to share on the pod. Nice words, that is. Wink, wink. I'm filling out my February calendar. I'm going to some drag brunches, Bad Bunny themed, Rihanna themed. I'm having a lot of fun this February. That is right. But you can follow me on the socials. Uh, most recently, I've started a uh, queer-oriented book club and uh, I'm sharing information on that on my TikTok page at Noah I'm Him. If you're reading it, it kind of looks like Noah Him Him, but that's part of the hilarity. So go ahead and give me a follow there. Follow me on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. Uh, always sharing exciting info and having a good time here with my buddy Brandon King. Uh, can't wait to return to the pod and have some new coverage for you. Thank you, Brandon. Oh, I'm his buddy. Uh, if you guys want to follow his buddy, he's at uh, Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. Uh, you can follow my band at Cablebox underscore music. That's Cablebox underscore music. We've got gigs coming up through Phoenix and uh, Tempe. Uh, please go and follow us if you are so uh, curious. And again, all that information will be in the description below if you are so curious. So thank you all so much for tuning in to episode 43 of Plot Devices. We're officially back in the new year. Hopefully several more episodes to come at least. Uh, my name is Brandon King alongside Noah Guzman. This has been Plot Devices, and we'll catch you guys next time.